And Psalm 104 kind of is our text and our passage for this evening. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have an industrious chipmunk living somewhere in our neighborhood. He's as busy as anything bringing a mouthful of whatever it is that he's got in that puffed up mouth uh, from one neighbor to the other. And he gets there running across our back deck. And then once the food is deposited or whatever it is that he's got in his mouth is deposited at one neighbor, he charges back and he goes and gets some more. It is really fun and amazing to watch this little fellow scamper back and forth, his little tail in the, in, the, in the air. And then there are those little bunnies that hop by our windows along with both black and gray squirrels that keep us more than entertained. Often, in some ways, what's happening outside our window, because we see it sitting on the couch in the same room where our television is, sometimes what's happening outside in the backyard through that window is more exciting than what's taking place on the TV screen. And besides all the little furry creatures that inhabit our backyard, there are a myriad of birds, cardinals, grackles, finches, sparrows, robins, all of them busy with little ones who squawk and who beg for food from their parents, and then those parents faithfully deliver food into the mouths of their offspring. And sometimes the offspring almost is larger than the actual mother or father bird. Elsewhere in our neighborhood, and some of those who live in our neighborhood know this, elsewhere in the neighborhood we've had the joy of watching Canada geese uh, care for their little goslings, as well as family of ducks taking their little ones for walks. And besides seeing the birds, oh, to listen to them sing and make music to the Lord. And then the cooing of the morning doves. What a beautiful sound that is. And then besides the furry animals and our feathered friends that provide us with all kinds of entertainment, there are the insects. Some very prominent, like the, the, the bee that seems to hover a few centimeters below our upper deck. I have no idea what that bee is doing there, but he or she, as the case may be, can hover for long periods of time in, in one particular spot, just centimeters below the wood. And then there are those spiders that seem to be able to spin their webs in the most unusual places so that when you walk onto the driveway, you get hit by a spider web. Like, how do they get there? How does that all work? And then there's ants, abundant in their colony under the tree just near the road in front of our house. And there was even a toad in our front yard, and I discovered one in our backyard, the other day, which is great news because that means there's insects around because if there's toads, there's insects. It's fascinating to see all the wildlife around a suburban lot of all things. I'm sometimes just amazed when watching a set of winged parents care for their young. How do they know what to do? How do the young know what to do? And then Consider that spider. How do they know how to spin a web? How do they function in that web without getting caught and trapped in it themselves? How do, their, how do ants find their way back 
to the maze and, and through a maze of tunnels. And how in the world does a bee find its way back to a hive after having foraged among the flowers? So much that we see around us in this world is just astounding. Our streetlight on our street right across from our house is out, uh, is burned out, uh, making for a rather dark driveway. I did call the city to say, ask them to replace it, but what better way to see the stars at night? Have you ever spent much time looking at the sky, even right where you live? Maybe too bright, I'm not sure. We know that light travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. Really? I don't think I can fathom what that means. But what it does mean, the scientists tell us, is that it takes light 1.2 seconds to travel the 238,000 miles or 380,800 kilometers between the moon and the earth. Light takes about five hours, or consider this, light takes about 8.3 minutes to travel from the sun to the earth. This is from the book Origins that you'll also find in our library. Light takes about five hours to travel between Earth and Pluto. The nearest star is much further from the Earth, and light takes 4.3 years to travel from it to Earth. Distances in, distances in the universe are so vast that astronomers do not measure in miles, but in light years. The distance light travels in one year. Thus, the nearest star is 4.3 light years, or about 25 trillion miles, or 40 trillion kilometers away. Remember as kids, sometimes when we had to uh, put an address on an envelope just for fun, we used to, you know, used to do that. We used to write addresses in envelopes and put them in mailboxes. Remember those days? Some of you still do that. Anyway, sometimes we put our address on our envelope and then we'd begin with our street address and then we'd add our town and then the province and the country and the continent and then the earth and the universe. Remember that whole list we used to do? Well, when I'm standing on my driveway where I am living in Kitchener, my address would read something like this. 175 Autumn Hill Crescent, Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, North America, planet Earth, solar system, Milky Way galaxy, one galaxy in the universe filled with 10 billion galaxies, local group, a few dozen Milky Ways, Virgo supercluster, whatever that is, the universe. How's that for an address? You think they'll find me? As I stand in my driveway in the darkness of the night and look up, I'm filled with amazement and I really have no understanding for what I'm seeing. And I really wonder if anybody really does. The ants, the birds, the spiders, the furry creatures, the whales, the water creatures, the human body, the flowers, the trees, the stars, the universe, 
the entire creation is worth considering and celebrating. As the psalmist puts it in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Or as Psalm 104 104 puts it in verse 24, how many are your works, O Lord, in wisdom you have made them all. The entire creation, every little piece and every large piece is worth considering and celebrating. And that's what Psalm 104, the writer of Psalm 104 does. He celebrates and takes great delight in the reality of the creation and in the miracle and in the mystery of creation. Psalm 104 expresses what C.S. Lewis called the psalmist's gusto for nature. And I hope you noted some of that as we read Psalm 104. There are a number of counts of accounts of creation, of the creation story in the Bible, similar, of course, in, in many ways, and yet different in style and in terms of the points that they are making. In Genesis 1, for example, we read a rather straightforward, somewhat sober narrative of what happened at the beginning of time. It's in a teaching style, listing the events and the sequence of events. God said, let there be light, sky, land, seas, vegetation, lights in the sky, living creatures in the sea and in the air, and finally living creatures on the earth, culminating in the creation of the human race. Formula was the same for every day. God spoke in, in something into being, and it was, and it was another day. There's not a whole lot of emotion packed into the opening account. However, it is clear that God, Israel's God, the covenant God, the only true God as opposed to all other gods, is the creator of all things. In Job 38, we read yet another account of God's creation. This time it's written rhetorically. Job and his friends had done a lot of chattering for some 36 chapters, suggesting that they knew what was going on in the universe and so forth. They suggested that they knew what was happening with Job and how God works and all those kinds of things. And then God responds to their chatter. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Who marked off its dimensions? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Who shut up the sea behind doors? And so forth. The questions concerning continue concerning the creation, all the while making the point that really Job and his friends or human beings did not make the world or the universe. God did. And if anyone understands what's happening in history and on this globe, it's the Lord. After all, He is the one who made it happen all in the first place. It was the Lord who created all these things. It's the Lord who provides for His creation. All things are in His hands. He knows where it's going. We are but creatures. 
And then we have Psalm 104. That's different from both accounts mentioned. It's an enthusiastic poem about the creation. In Genesis, the facts are written in a narrative form, not here. While Psalm 104 follows the order of the events as we find them in Genesis 1, yet now the format is such with that wonderment, excitement, and awe are expressed concerning what the Lord has done. And even beyond the wonder and the excitement expressed at the creation itself is the wonder and excitement expressed about what the Lord is doing even now. That's another distinction from the narrative of Genesis 1. The opening verses of the Bible explain what, ha what, what happened. That is, what happened back at the beginning of time. But in this psalm, the writer confesses that the world and all things for that matter owe their past origin and their present form to the continuous operation or the continuous working of God, verses 10 through 23. The Lord gives drink to the animals, provides grass for the cattle, and that season follows upon season. And all of that brings incredible excitement to the writer. The fact that winged parents feed their young in the way they do brings excitement to the writer. The ways in which trees grow, the ways in which the universe functions brings excitement to the psalmist. Now, we may have all kinds of questions about the creation. How large is the universe? Are there other planets out there that are inhabitable? How old is the earth? How does a spider know how to spin a web? How does she know which strand should be sticky and which not? How in the world does a coho salmon find its spawning stream? How does a monarch butterfly find its way from Canada to Mexico? How does a blue whale survive? And so forth. And we need not turn to the Bible to find, such answers, find answers to such questions because we're not going to find them there. The Bible is not to be used as a scientific textbook. Moreover, it was never God's intention or plan to give an account of the creation that would fully satisfy our scientific minds and answer all our questions, and our questions are many. Rather, the Bible is concerned to let us know that God is the creator and the sustainer. It's he who gave the robin the knowledge concerning caring for its young. It's he who gave the chipmunk its personality. It's he who put the universe together as the creator. As to exactly how it was and is done, well, some things are going to remain a mystery in spite of our possible scientific explanations. And while we explore the creation with cameras and all sorts of scientific instruments, and while we're constantly finding new things and science can be tremendously exciting, I suspect that we will never be finished discovering all that there is to see and all that there is to know. That's how wonderful the creation is. That's how wonderful the Creator is. And a psalm such as 104 is a song about the joy of knowing who made this beautiful world and its splendid setting in this vast universe. The tone of this psalm, this song, is far from scientific. 
And when the writer has reflected on all that the Lord God of Israel has done and continues to do in the creation, and when the writer has reflected on the beauty and the order of it all, he responds with a song of joy and in thanksgiving. He can do no otherwise. Verse 33 and 34, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. It's interesting that this psalm, unlike many other psalms, isn't based on God delivering the writer from the hand of his enemy, nor is it based on God's promised deliverance at the hand of the Messiah. The psalm is not about sin or about God's plan of salvation or anything of the sort. It's strictly based on what the psalmist knows about the creation, on what the psalmist has witnessed by looking at the cycles of life all around him and so on. How great thou art, he begins to sing. The Lord created and continues to care for his creation. And look at how special and how beautiful it all is. And because of that fact, I will sing to the Lord all of my life. Then did you notice verse 35? Verse 35 is the only verse that talks about a fly in the ointment. It brings up the only negative in the psalm, but may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Lord, the creation that you have made is so wonderful. It's so special. It speaks of your glory. It speaks of your majesty. It speaks of your great love and your great power. And then there are those wicked. And then there are those sinners. There are those blemishes on the creation. Those blemishes on the beauty of it all. Lord, they sure mess it up. Lord, make them vanish. Lord, make all things new. Lord, may your creation be untouched by anything untoward, by anything dirty, by anything contrary to your will. That's the prayer of verse 35. For the rest, the psalm is one of praise and wonder, one in which the writer has, as it were, stopped to smell the roses, so to speak, and he is awestruck and he can't keep his mouth shut anymore. He must give credit where credit is due. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. And of course, the Lord that's referred to is the Lord God of Israel, the covenant-giving creator, one true God. Now, such a response of joy and praise, such a song to the creator for the creation about is unique to the Old Testament, to the Christian faith even. Among the other religions of the day, there were festivals and the worship of idols or the sun or the moon or the earth, but there was often no great joy in those festivals. Rather, attached to those festivals or to this worship was often merely a fulfillment of various duties, often sexual and sacrificial, in order to appease the gods. And the Bible even sees the service of other gods as slavery. 
And some extend this sort of thinking to include much of the evolutionary or naturalistic ways of thinking concerning the creation. Reverend Henry de Moore, writing about all these sorts of things, observes, quote, I have never heard any evolutionist singing songs of adoration. Evolution is a drab and impersonal affair, unquote. And in many ways, it is. In spite of the enthusiasm brought in by such scientists as Bob McDonald of CBC's Quirks and Quarks, and in spite of the enthusiasm and fun brought into science by the likes of Bill Nye, the science guy, much of mainstream science and scientific theories have nothing to do with a personal God who seems to have fun when he made the creation and all the things of creation, but they only have to do with some laws of nature and some forces in the universe, hardly the kinds of things that cause one to be filled with songs of praise. And whereas the recognition of the Lord God of Israel as the Creator God always brings joy, freedom, and a response of thanksgiving, as we note in Psalm 104, the basic laws of nature and studying them without knowing God don't bring that kind of joy. There is nothing impersonal about his thanksgiving in Psalm 104. He sings, How great thou art! The creation and the providential care of the Lord as expressed throughout Psalm 104 so impresses the writer that he can scarcely take it in. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. It's worth a song. It's worth a lifetime of song. And of course, the very fact that God created it all and that it didn't just randomly come to be also implies that there is some comfort in all of this. There is some direction to creation. It's going somewhere. It has meaning. It has purpose. If things just happen to come on the scene somewhere along the line rather randomly, then, then things will just go out of existence without any rhyme or reason, too. But the fact that the Father has created all things, including us, and the fact that he has it in his hands, and the fact that he sent his son Jesus to put it all straight again through his death and resurrection gives life purpose and meaning and value and means that it's headed to a day when all things will be made new. That's worth a song too. I love all the little creatures that make up my that make my backyard their home, their grazing area. They are as wonderful as the 40 trillion kilometers away nearest star. And I love it even more when I think that God created it all and that he continues to uphold it. It's worth a song. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Amen. Father in heaven, we praise you for the wonders of creation. Incredible. As we look at the little animals, and then as we look at the closest star, which is just a little dot, at least from our perspective. When we look at the majesty of this universe, and when we discover through telescopes that that there is so much more out there than, than we'd ever thought of before. That only shows how great and big and huge 
You are. You made it all. You look after it all. And thank you, Lord, for that there will be a day when all things will be made new. We can't even imagine what that will be like. But what a wonderful hope and a wonderful gospel. And then thank you, Lord, that we can think about the fact that in the vastness of this universe, you loved us and you cared for us, tiny little ants and little specks that we are, and you gave to us your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, indeed, you are great. And so we love you and we praise you and we honor you and we adore you. To you be the glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.